Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Smart Cities World podcast. Now, you'll know if you're a member of Smart Cities World that one of the topics we cover probably most regularly is climate change and more specifically climate action, what that means for cities and where progress is being made. And I'm joined by two special guests on today's episode from Global Engineering Management and Development Consultants, Mark McDonald. They are Claire Wildfire, Global Practice Lead for Cities, and Madeline Rawlins, Global Practice Lead for Climate Change. And with their help, we're going to delve further into some of those questions to work out where we are, some reasons to be cheerful, and what lays ahead on a long and winding road to a greener urban future. Claire, Madeline, welcome along. Fantastic to have you both with us today. Before we get underway in earnest, it would be great to get a quick introduction from both of you and some insight into your roles with McDonald. Brilliant. Um, thanks, Luke. Um, so my role is Global Practice Leader for Cities. And the way I like to explain it is that Mott McDonald designs the systems that keep cities running. So the roads, the railways, the schools, the homes and the hospitals, the energy, water, digital infrastructure, etc. And in my role, what really excites me is the intersection of these and how we can use the breadth and depth of um, our knowledge to improve outcomes for um, our cities and their citizens. So over to you, Madeline. Thanks, Claire. Um, like Claire, I'm the Global Practice Leader at Mont Madol, but for climate change. Um, part of my role is to build our capabilities around the business on, on climate, uh, work out ways to integrate climate change across all of our projects, um, and also um, feed into our global commitments on climate change as a, as a business as well. I've been at Mont McDonald for seven years, um, and in that time, I focused on embedding climate change across the business, developing new areas for growth, um, and particularly around climate change resilience. Before that, um, I worked in the carbon market, developing projects for carbon finance um, all across the world, and I lived and worked in Asia for seven years. Great to have you both with us, um, with your you know with your kind of range of expertise to, to run through this. Obviously, we're come together today to, to talk about climate change, climate action in cities and the response so far in urban areas to, to the climate crisis, why it's so important to take action now. First off, um, I want to focus in on um, the kind of narrative around urban climate action and the progress that's been made there over the last kind of seven, eight, nine months, I suppose. Um, if we look back to COP26 in, in Glasgow, which I suppose both of you were, were actually there for. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's looking really between between then and now, you know, how the emphasis has really changed around the steps that cities need to take to address climate change based on what you've seen in the market. Well, I, I would always start by saying that the outcome um, from COP26 is still very much short of what's needed to contain climate change to within two degrees or 1.5 degrees. And cities are a major contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. So their leadership is really critical to achieving those climate goals. Um, the focus coming out of COP for cities um, was, was a focus more on tangible action and accountability. Uh, for example, more than 1,000 cities signed up to the Cities Race to Zero initiative that raises ambition of cities through targets, robust plans, but also how to get there uh, with commitments on immediate action in certain areas. And on top of that, there's a requirement for more reporting on progress. So the emphasis has really shifted into concrete action 
um, and accountability. And at the heart of those commitments as well that cities have made um, is also a commitment to more inclusive climate action. For me, maybe more from the coalface, what I see is a better recognition of how imperative cities are to the conversation. So I see more cities working together. Um, I also encouragingly see more realisation of the need to adapt in cities, um, more emphasis on the global south and um, how the vulnerable cities there are the first places to experience significant impact. And um, we've also seen a, a recognition of how much of a shift in governance is needed. And I wanted to mention here some work we did for the UK Net Zero Infrastructure Industry Coalition on the role of cities in the climate agenda, um, which resulted in a report called A Place-Based Approach to Net Zero. And we concluded by recommending a four-pillar four pillar approach. Um, we call it the four P's, so powers, partnerships, platforms, and people. And we see, um, every day I see resonance on each of these in so many of the city's conversations that I'm, that I'm in. So I will just give a very quick um, explanation of those four Ps. So, um, so powers is the requirement for the remit for city action and the mandate to facilitate low carbon in interventions. Partnerships is this really important place where private sector and public sector are coming together using um, their, their skills and attributes under a common goal of the need for long-term climate resilience. Um, then the people angle is about the imperative for new skills that don't exist or are only emerging, and also people as in trust and cooperation with stakeholders and citizens. And then finally, the last one um, is the, the data platform angle, because using data, we can do more integrated planning, we can um, have better transparency and, and replicability, as well as being able to track the co-benefits of the various changes that we're implementing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so, so important to the overall approach is is having that. I think, you know, being able to kind of analyze it from a from a kind of top level and see how far we've come is is really important i think like you said madeline cop 26 left not a bitter taste for for some people but a longing for slightly more commitment slightly more action yeah um and a, a bit less conversation you you mentioned you know the the kind of reputation that, that cities have gained for for climate action over the last you know year or so, few years. Um, yeah, do you, do you think that has really helped to show central governments the role that cities are playing and have to play in climate action if they're to achieve their kind of broader policy goals around around climate change? So for me, I see that there is a growing recognition that cities are on the front line. City leaders are directly responsible for citizen well-being and health and um, for the, the impacts that are already being played out. So there was a really strong narrative that was coming out at COP26 and I've seen amplified about um, the the fact that it's it's predominantly in cities where the issues like extreme heat, um, flooding, etc., are are coming out to the fore. 
and therefore that recognition that there there's a need for more money to flow into cities but it feels like we're still at the beginning of a journey one thing i did want to mention um again related to the role that cities are playing in climate action is some great recognition from city leaders um of the importance of listening to the citizen so that the changes are um, done with the citizens on the ground, not to them um, as a as a sort of mandated thing that they, they don't understand. So I, I think that that for me is the epitome of why cities are so important is because of that um, ability to connect with so many, um, so many people at one time. Absolutely. I think that that inclusive approach is the need for a more inclusive approach and becoming clearer as, as time goes on. Um, it's it's something that at Smart Cities World we built into our um, kind of 10 action points for, for cities mm. um, looking to, to take more climate action in, in recent times. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's it's a huge point that is really just receiving more emphasis and more focus as as time goes on whereas you know probably five years ago it was not really a part of this conversation i suppose the events in in the u.s around black lives matter especially has has really helped to put the emphasis on inclusion and equity and diversity across all of these kinds of modern challenges yeah and um so you mentioned that um this is a sort of a new area to be in. We're developing some of the tools that allow the engagement with the citizens. So um, using digital tools to visualize and display alternative versions of the future and help citizens um, see their part in steering their preferable future as opposed to some of the, the more dystopian futures that, um, that you know, are, are not really, um, particularly desirable and there's something that I've realized which is that we need to apply imagination this isn't just about metrics and you know and doom and gloom or any other form of communication we've got to be able to put ourselves in the shoes of the people that we're trying to affect and help understand what it is that will help them um, perhaps change their behaviors which um, back to the digital aspect to this isn't necessarily um, the the thing that you the the argument that you might think which might be about resilience or carbon reduction. Sometimes it's a co-benefit angle, which is improved health, etc. And that's where digital um, information can really help because that um, gathering the information, processing it, and helping show up where there are co-benefits is all part of this um, communication and engagement journey that we need to be on. So so I've seen m multiple tools that are working in this space, coupled with that ability to communicate with stories and um, and visual ideas and, and imagination. I think that digital side is, is really fascinating. It's something we'll come on to talk about a little bit later on as well as we talk more about kind of building in resilience measures against against climate the climate crisis one of the things i wanted to, to put to both of you um we you know we've talked about the way that cities are on the front line and you know the kind of reputation of cities for as uh, as central governments see them for contributing to their their overall goals and objectives you know 
Clay, you raised this as we were doing our prep for this episode. It's, it's a slightly UK-centric question, but I think we look slightly wider as well to the US. It still applies. I wanted to ask, you know, to what extent, really, do you see climate action in cities as, as decentralised and whether you think a more a more joined-up approach instigated by central government would would help or hinder the progress that cities are are making and are able to make if we were to ask a kind of cross-section of local authority and city government uh, representatives the answers would maybe be split 50 50 but i'd love to get your take on it yeah um one thing i can do is is talk about some of the findings from the report i mentioned um which is very uk specific but as you say um is likely to apply elsewhere. But um, in the UK, the situation is that we have our national legal requirement to reach net zero, but this hasn't been passed down to city level. So in effect, cities don't have any local mandate to act. So um, whilst they have set climate action strategies, um, they they don't have the power or the funding to make um, that much progress because their powers are relating to, say, the planning process, which is about um, predominantly new build and some ability to influence on transport. But they don't have a whole scale um, ability to do something at the, at, to, to balance the, their mandate that they do have for economic growth. Um, so when, you're, when, a, when a local authority is trying to balance um, growth with a need to be uh, more careful about um, decarbonisation and things like that, they they don't actually have the right balance in the UK to, to make the right strategic or appropriate strategic decisions. So um, in terms of a more a joined up approach, we also touched on this in the report. Um, it, it would, the way we see it is um, the national ma- mandate flowing through to local powers and targets, but also very um, clear facilitated interaction and sharing of insights and lessons, both between um, national and local government and between cities themselves, so that those who are lucky enough to be able to be the front runners get to pass useful insights um, to those who uh, are, for various reasons, having to sort of follow behind in some of the, the, the changes that are being made. It's really fascinating. The, the rate of progress that we see is, is vastly different from place to place. Um, yeah. And like you say, it, in a lot of places, it's it's not mandated. If we, we kind of look around the world and it's baffling in a way um, that there are some pretty significant cities in terms of kind of size of population and economy that, that don't have climate action plans. Um, uh, and then some that do, whose objectives and goals have years attached to them and targets attached to them that kind of seems like it would be too little too late. I definitely saw that the um, the UK man- mandated target um, created a step change in in who you know in a lot of people, including business, who were now looking at this as something that was definitely going to happen. And in some ways, I I don't know whether um, Madeline um, can give insight from this from her experiences in China, but in some ways it's helpful to have an autocratic um, approach because then you don't have to get so much um, 
collaboration and cohesion and community agreement to whatever future you're you're trying to steer yeah it's certainly true claire if anything that went into the uh, five-year plan in china filtered down uh, you know through the provinces through the cities um some 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 of those local authorities did better than others but in, in general you know once once it gone into that plan um the job got done so um i, I definitely saw that and and in particular saw that with things like um the renewables industry even carbon capture and storage which um you know wasn't uh, China took a, a huge lead on because that went into into that plan. So yeah, it really it really does help, but it's not like that everywhere in the world, obviously. No, it certainly isn't. But it's good to kind of see both sides. I think. Um, wanted to to kind of move on to the next the next thing that I wanted to wanted to raise and focus on, which is the kind of opportunity for a for a green recovery from the pandemic. Um, it's something that's kind of been touted by by lots of different local and national governments, the the focus on green as, you know, uh, an opportunity coming out of the pandemic to really kind of build on some of the things that we almost fell into uh, during the pandemic in terms of, you know, less congestion in our city centres, better air quality. Um, you know, what what do you think are the, are the primary aspects really that cities should be focusing on in order to enable that that recovery from the pandemic to be as green as possible i almost can't believe that we're still talking about the pandemic two years later but it is something that you know for for now at least feels like it's going to be ever present through all of these sorts of conversations it's a it's an important one to pick up on yeah um i do totally agree and it has shown that there are there is the possibility of pretty fast change when there's a burning platform. So um, from the spotlight on things like health and social inequality that were thrown up by the pandemic, we definitely see a reframing of, of the growth agenda. So it's moving in small steps, but see an increasing support for the need to balance growth ambitions with things like um, in, inclusive, accessible employment and just climate action. So they they are small but important um, aspects that are now managed in in parallel um, with with some of the more traditional forms of what good good looks like going forwards. And I wanted to give a shout out to um, a couple of examples of this. So one is the um, Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. Um, it's it's uh, several years old now, but um, from Wales, which is already having an impact on um, some of the infrastructure decisions that are coming out of Wales, not least on um, on transport. And then something more recent is the West Yorkshire Combined Authority um, has. Uh, they asked us to help them provide uh, a a toolkit for bringing carbon into uh, infrastructure decision making so that um, it isn't that sort of missing part of the conversation when you're deciding what to invest in and where. It's there front and centre and ability to look at that as an additional layer in the decision making. Um, so both of those to me are really important sort of aspects of this, this shift in what good looks like. Um, and then um, finally, before passing over to Madeline, um, one thing I thought was worth mentioning, because it's been 
um, the subject of a lot of our discussion um, internally is the one of skills. So um, in the green recovery, cities can and are focusing on the locally applicable opportunities for decarbonisation and, and adaptation and resilience agendas. So, for example, energy efficiency in cold regions, passive cooling in warm regions, renewables where there's wind, solar or, you know, so, so where there's there's the opportunity to make the most of renewables. And we know that there will be a need for retraining of current skills because as um, things like the oil and gas markets, as we as we know them, um, are, are probably declining. But yet there will be a need for um, some retraining into hydrogen as opposed to natural gas. Those are the sorts of things that cities can be planning alongside their local education establishments and local business to put um, some of that transition into place. And I, I do think that that's something that we'll do. We can do really well, but it does. It will take planning. Yeah, thanks, Claire. I mean, the the, um, the decarbonisation agenda clearly um, has a lot to contribute to creating jobs. And, and you're right to point out um, that there is you know, a real skills gap with, within some of that. But there's huge opportunities around uh, renewables, as you say, sustainable transport, um, retrofitting buildings, um, but also nature based solutions that are able to tackle both the causes and impacts of climate change. Um, what's become increasingly important um, for, for me recently, but also really important for cities, is the uh, bringing together of the net zero and, and resilience agendas um, for tackling climate change. Um, in cities, it's particularly important because vulnerability and emissions are high um, and tackling those both at the same time is, is really important. Um, and then beyond job creation, there's, there's also the opportunity to develop solutions that minimise some of those equalities that we've touched on, inequalities that we've touched on earlier, as well as deliver both social and economic benefits across the city. Um, to do this, we need to have more of the right people involved in the planning process and identify uh, measures needed for the most vulnerable populations. You mentioned the, the coming together of climate and resilience agendas, which is something that I think is going to be absolutely critical because you know, we can't, <laughs> you, you can't do one without the other because whether we like it or not, um, the, the steps that our, our cities take um, against, against the climate to improve things, some of the damage is already done. Um, and so kind of long, longer term resilience measures also need to be built in. Um, so the next thing that I wanted to, to come to actually, so, um, so let's, let's tackle that. And the first thing I wanted to ask is, you know, in terms of what good looks like, what work cities should be doing to assess how how ready and how prepared they are for those long term effects of the climate crisis. Um, if they take action now, then they may be able to mitigate the very worst of it. But there are still steps they'll need to take to truly be resilient for for the for the real long term. Yeah, so we've we've heard recently um, in in the IPCC sixth assessment report on the impacts of climate change um, that they are particularly am amplified in cities. Cities are incredibly vulnerable to high temperatures, extreme rainfall, um, as well as sea level rise in certain locations. Uh, essentially, because concrete absorbs heat but not water, um, cities also house more than half of the world's population and have an ever increasing uh, value of infrastructure assets within the city. This again amplifies the risks that are associated with the physical impacts of climate change in cities. 
Um, there, there are many things that cities should do to prepare for the long-term effects. Um, firstly, and most obviously, they need to look at the risks to their infrastructure as a whole, um, as this underpins much of the economic and social value. Uh, climate change risk ass assessment at the city level is important to understand risks and the interdependencies across the city. Um, but it's also important that we look at climate risks um, in some of the less obvious sectors. For example, how will changes in weather patterns affect the way that people live, work and travel in the city? And how does that affect demand for key services, uh, whether that's travel, education or health? Um, this also speaks to some of the points that Claire raised earlier about um, in the conversation. Um, and then at the same time, we need to consider how the physical climate risk will affect implementation of net zero policies. As I say, they, they need to be considered together. Uh, for example, if we're looking to electrify our transport and building sectors, then we're going to be reliant on, on power that then has its own uh, risks associated with climate change impacts, whether that's power lines coming down in storms or um, substations that are flooded. Beyond assessing the risks, uh, cities also need to look at how to uh, maximise those benefits from nature-based solutions to address vulnerabilities. This is really important. We need to use nature to make space to absorb water, uh, as well as reduce the urban heat island effect to reduce the impacts of flooding and extreme temperatures. There's so much, so much to consider for cities. I, um, I mean, I really don't envy anybody working in city government at the moment, um, or probably over the next sort of ten to fifteen years, because it is just such a mammoth task there are so many considerations to make not least um where the money the funding the investment is going to come from to enable the progress that needs to be made so quickly uh, at this stage um what steps can be taken what examples are you seeing um of uh public and private sector coming together i suppose to, to bolster finance and investment in order to create more sustainable, more resilient cities, um, you know, and how those efforts can be can be replicated around the world to ensure that you know it's not just the kind of tier one cities, but as we look, as you said earlier on, to to the global south and the steps that need to be taken there, um, how we can really bolster those efforts truly globally. So, so. Yeah, there's an increasing focus on, on, on how we access the finance to de deliver all of these climate objectives, whether that's financing of climate projects or building climate change objectives into, uh, into investments. Um, recently at Mont McDonald, we've been focused on the latter to create a transformation in how we plan and invest in our infrastructure. So we've been working uh, to shift the resilience narrative from the risks of future losses um, to making the case for investment in resilience. Um, so I'm, I just wanted to share this example because it, it has the potential for replication uh, very broadly. Uh, we're working with the collaboration, um, the Coalition for Climate Resilient Investment, and their aim is to integrate physical climate change risks into all investment decisions from the national level to the asset le level and everywhere in between. Um, the coalition is, is definitely gathering momentum at the moment with the tools that are being developed. Um, and these are being adopted and, and endorsed by both governments and investors around the world. So we're looking both at the public sector and the private sector and how they embed those physical risks. Um, the work that we've been doing in Mont McDonald is looking at how to translate essentially climate scenarios into cash flow models, investment decisions, asset valuations, so that those risks are properly priced in 
And so the benefits of resilient investments in terms of securing revenue and reducing operating costs um, are really factored in and, and we can demonstrate those, those benefits to investors and lenders. Um, we've also developed tools at the planning level to make sure that we prioritise the right investments uh, and that we protect the most economic and social value at the national and subnational level. So the final thing that I wanted to cover off while I've got you both here, and we did say that we would come back to the digital side of this kind of this conversation, is is the role that technology has to play in in building resilience into cities, um, whether that is in in monitoring or predicting or forecasting impacts, the kind of use of digital twins to to look at infrastructure and redevelop spaces. Um, it'd be great to to understand what you are kind of seeing in the market around those kinds of technologies? There's a number of examples and, and obviously smart and predictive technology is, is really essential for uh, monitoring and provision of warnings for extreme events. Um, one example, an obvious example, is the use of smartphones that can be used to alert people to possible dangers and give guidance on how to respond um, and cope in, in such events. We have already used this approach in many cities and it's, and it's likely to get better with time. Um, again, though, it's worth noting that this does rely on the, the telecoms infrastructure, um, which may also be at risk from, from those events. So we need to make sure that we, we have approaches to getting messages out to people when, when that might fail. Um, another solution that we've been developing in Mont McDonald is a, is a real-time decision support tool uh, called Moata Smart, Smart Water. And that's being used to manage flood risk in cities around the world. This works by collecting real-time information on, on water flow rates, water levels, and combining that with asset and weather information um, and machine learning so that uh, to, to better forecast flooding events around a city. Uh, we've used this in cities all around the world, in Australia, New Zealand, Thailand, and others. Um, and using, using technologies like that has, has created uh, cost savings for, for the city themselves, as well as driven um, new ideas uh, for investments in resilience. Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think any kind of implementation that, that might kind of trigger new new approaches, new ways of doing things are going to be welcome uh, at this point um, because it's, I mean, the, the scale of the scale of the challenge is just so staggering. I mean, I guess, you know, you guys see it every day. Um, and for me, I, I see it most days covering the kind of things that we cover at Smart Cities World, but it it really just kind of, brings it home the uh the scale of the challenge that we're facing we see you know the the kind of warnings it's it's almost quite a quite a frightening kind of prospect to work out what the path forward is but i think it's also really encouraging to see that there is a path forward uh and that there is progress being made albeit you know at a rate that maybe isn't necessarily going to pull us out of the situation that we're in quite as quickly as we as, as we need. I'm in two minds because it is so great to have such unequivocal um, focus on this is what you have to do. Um, but on the other hand, I've been in this industry trying to persuade people to move mm. on that path for the last 30 years or so. And it's just gutting that um, after after all that time of trying to persuade people, we're right at the cliff face now. Yeah, 100%. I, I was looking through some data earlier on. Um, for an upcoming report and one of the one of the data points in there is basically change in air quality over the last 30 years and to see some 
some cities where it's you know a thousand percent worse than it was thirty years ago is is devastating and and it does you know, like i said it, it shows it shows that scale uh of the of the, the of the situation that we're in the ch- the challenges that cities are facing but there is hope uh, i suppose but for now though i want to thank you both so much for taking the time out to join me on the, on today's podcast this it's been a really eye-opening and insightful conversation for for me i'm sure it will be for our listeners as well thank you both very much indeed and um, i'm sure we'll speak again soon yes thanks luke a pleasure thanks luke huge thanks again to claire and madeline for joining me always a pleasure to speak with guests like these whose knowledge and expertise are going to be so important in delivering an urban future that is more resilient climate ready and sustainable We'll be back with a new episode in just a few weeks' time, so please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss out. And don't forget, you can also become a Smart Cities World member for free today to enjoy the rest of our content, both on Urban Climate Action and far beyond as well. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll see you on the next one.